Romans chapter 2. The trial continues. What we said was the Apostle Paul sort of set up a courtroom, and he's going to not um, attempt to, but he's going to, beyond any shadow of a doubt, prove that we are all sinners. All of us. All of us are sinners. And so uh, today we look at a little bit about judging and who who gets to judge? Who gets to do that? And uh, we'll look at a little bit of the difference between God and people, God judging and then people judging. But what's the room that Paul has created in the book of Romans? He's created a courtroom. There's a judge there. There's an indictment. But the indictment came because of an investigation. Um, you know, the Psalms say, search me, Lord, and know me, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Do a search, a deep search of me, and see if there's anything wicked. And so the investigation has happened, and now there's the indictment, because the investigation proved that you are a sinner, that we are sinners. And so now there's the trial. Well, the interesting thing about this trial is you know, we like to say that you're innocent until proven guilty. In this particular trial, you're guilty when you come into the courtroom. You're already guilty. And the verdict is death, physical death and spiritual death. And Paul proves beyond any reasonable doubt that we are all sinners. And so chapters 1 and 2, we're looking at three different defendants. We're looking at the notorious sinners. We looked at them last week. The people who sin, and it's so obvious that they sin. They sin openly, and their social sins, and their open sins, and people like to point their fingers at them. I think that what Paul is doing in chapter 1, when he's going through that whole litany of sins, and then he, he camps out for quite a while, actually, on sexual sins. And the sexual sins of Paul's day are no different than the sexual sins of our day. In fact, in Paul's day, it was probably worse. You know, you had Caesar Nero, who he, his wife, we talked about this in First Peter. Caesar Nero, he loved his wife, but he was, uh, he was a violent guy. And so he killed his wife by kicking her head in. And then after he kicked her head and he missed her, so he found a young boy that he thought was as pretty as his wife, and he married that young boy and turned that boy into his wife and made him look like his wife, and then would call that young boy by his wife's name. And, you know, if that wasn't enough, then he went and he got another boy, and he married that boy, so he had the one who he had dressed up like his wife, and then he had the other boy, and he's... he's married to both of them, and he would ride around in his chariot with the two of those, that's the, that's the prime minister. That's uh, the emperor. That's the president. So, you know, we're not, we're not in Nero's day for sure. And those kinds of things, Paul is pointing those out. And when he's talking about those things in chapter 1, and he's talking about all the notorious sinners and the obvious sinners and the crazy sinners and the sexual sinners, I think he's trying to get nice people outraged. I think he's trying to get nice people to say, those guys, those whatever those guys are, those this, those that, those these, those them, those, I am outraged. And Paul's like, I'm delighted that you're outraged. 
because we're going to turn it to you in a minute. <laughs> and we're going to look at we're going to look at the root of that outrage and see how healthy that outrage really is. And so in in the beginning of chapter 1 he uh, he looks at the heathen, the gentiles, the pagans. Well, um today the one who's on the docket today is the moral person. The moral person the hypocrites, the ones who are getting outraged about them. And next week, we'll look at the religious sinners. What are the charges? In chapter 1, verse 18, the charges were rebellion against God, godlessness. Oh, but then it was also wickedness, offenses towards people, offenses towards each other, enemies of God, treason against the king of kings. And then sins against people. So the sins are horizontal. They're sins that we commit against each other. And then the sins are vertical, sins that we commit against God. Who's the judge when you come into the courtroom? And now, if, you're, if you fancy yourself to be a nice person and fancy yourself to be a good person, then we want to welcome you into the courtroom because you are on trial today. <laughs> this, is, this is your turn. You are going to be on trial. And the judge is Jesus. And Jesus has the right and the authority to judge. He has the right because it's his creation. And he judges according to truth. And he judges according to his perfection. So what are we going to plea? Well... I didn't know, or I'm not that bad. <laughs> I love that one. I think we've all used that one. Well, I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not that bad. What do you mean that bad? How how bad is that? You're not that bad compared to the one that you're comparing yourself to, but compared to somebody who's way ahead of you, you are that bad. You're definitely that bad. Sentence: physical death, spiritual death, the miracle. The judge is going to come out of his seat, and he is going to take our payment, the perfect one. Because God can't let sin go. The penalty must be paid. We're not getting off without a penalty. The penalty has to be paid. That's justice. God is absolutely just. He cannot let sin go. But he's also full of mercy. But mercy can't override justice. Somehow they need to come together. How do mercy and justice come together? They come together at the cross where the judge himself pays the penalty. The merciful judge himself, looking at the defendants, takes the place of the defendant standing in front of him and pays the penalty himself. That's what Jesus did for us. And so... We're going to look at the dilemma, the question in people's minds. Well, what about good people? What, a, what about good people? Surely they're not condemned, right? We just looked at all of those notorious kinds of sinners, and, and we want to condemn them, and we want to point the finger at them, and it's obvious where they're at. And really, when Paul gets everybody sort of outraged, at least gets the nice people and the good people and probably the religious people, gets them into a state of outrage. Some of them are saying it serves them right. Serves them right. Serves them right. Paul had been pointing out the notorious, the, the, those who are notoriously guilty. 
And generally, in that environment, generally the moral good people like to congratulate themselves. Yeah, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm sort of morally educated. Paul would make a great attorney, absolutely make a great attorney. Because after he gets after he gets everybody in agreement to condemn, and all of those notorious sins, right, all of those bad sins, all of those look-at-them sins, what Paul does is he's brilliant with it because in the middle of calling all of those sins out, he says, and then gossipers just throws it in there, piles it in there. Same thing as those notorious sinners, gossipers. And so after he gets agreement to condemn, he uses the same argument on the moralists and on the religious people. Because I don't know how it works with you, but I can tell you how it works with me, and the Bible bears this out, is that we judge others by their actions. We see what they're doing, and we judge them based on their actions. But I do similar things, and I judge myself by my intent. <laughs> Yeah, but they did that because. Yeah, but they did that because. We always like to be above somebody else. We always like to be the good one. We always like to be the smart one. We always like to, you know, we like to be on top, the smart one, smarter than everybody else. It's like the barber who, uh, he's cutting this guy's hair, and this little boy comes in, this young boy comes in. And the barber whispers in the hands of the guy whose hair he's doing. He says, here comes the dumbest boy in the world. And so the boy comes in and, and the barber says, watch this to the guy. And he takes a dollar in one hand and he takes two quarters in the other hand. And he says to the boy, which one do you want? And the boy looks at the shining quarters and he takes the shining quarters. And he takes off and he goes. And the barber said, look at that kid, how dumb he is. He never learns. He comes in and does that every day. So who's the smart one? <laughs> Takes the dollar, the game is over. We always like to think we're the smart one. We're the smart one, you're the dumb one. We're the good one, you're the bad one. And Paul's going to put us all in the same, all in the same category. Because whenever you judge, you condemn yourself. Where does it say that? Right here, chapter 2, verse 1. Finally there. You. Um, you know, the problem with the Bible is that the Bible's written in Greek in the New Testament and Aramaic, Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so you have to sometimes dig into words and find out the background of the word to understand what it means. And this particular word here in the Greek, you, do you know what it means? It means you. <laughs> it means you. There's no great secret here. There's no great hidden meaning. There's no, there's no wiggling out of it. He just got all of the good people outraged, all pointing their fingers. You... Therefore, have no excuse. Circle that one because uh, what's going to happen here with the good people, with the nice people, the nice sinners, is they learn to make excuses for themselves. 
I was going to say we learn to make excuses for ourselves, but I don't know if I want to categorize myself in there with the good people. I'd just be a sinner, Paul. I, I, read, I read the first three chapters. So you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Really? Really? I do the same things as that whole list? Yeah, you do the same thing as that whole list. No, I don't. I've never done one of those things. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if you look on a woman lustfully in your heart, then you've committed adultery with her. You've done it in your heart. You just don't either have opportunity or courage to do it outwardly. You did it in your heart. You did it in your heart. And so if you've done it in your heart, then you've done it. You're guilty. You're guilty. So whenever you judge, whenever you condemn, you're condemning yourself. So when you look at all of them, them, those people, and condemn them, what do they say? They say when you point the finger at somebody, there's you know, three fingers pointing back at you. And whenever you judge another, here's the problem with judging. The problem with judging another person is when you judge them, you have set a standard outside of yourself, right? I'm judging you based on that. So I have just set a standard. And now if that's the standard, am I going to live up to that standard that I've set? Forget God's standard. Forget the standard of of community. Forget social standards. Paul starts with your standard, the standard that you have created. Let's use that. Let's use that. Let's use your standard. And so the standard that you're creating is probably going to condemn everyone anyway, not just the obvious sinner, because the moralist is not condemned for judging, but for doing the same things, for doing the same things. It's kind of interesting that the human beings are very complicated, and we've grown more complicated I think over the years, uh, we're complicated, complicated people. And what happens with us is when we hate things inside of us, when we hate things about us, we often condemn people for those same things, for those same things. It's been amazing to me over the years to to watch some, you know, I'm in preacher's circles, you know, run around with preachers, read about preachers, know preachers. And it's been amazing to me to see some of the preachers that have come down the hardest on certain behaviors. You find out that a couple of decades later, they've been involved in those behaviors themselves. And so they're, they're pretty mouthy about it, but inside they, they've got the same struggles. And outside, some of them are doing the same exact things. And then this thing about judging other people How about the attitude of self-righteousness that cares nothing about the soul of another person? Cares nothing about the soul of another person. When you get into those people, thems, those, those people, what you start to do, sociologists will tell you this, that when you can take a group of people and rather than call them by their name, but give them some name, designate them as something, call them this, call them that. And I'm not going to do the, the names that you call them this and call them that because you can't 
do that. You can't do it anymore even as an example, so I won't. So, so whatever it is in your mind, you call somebody these names, and when you call somebody these names and assign these names to either individuals or groups, you have dehumanized them. They're no longer humans. You don't see them as people. You just see them in this category. Or you just see them in a group having an agenda. Oh, you know, those people with that agenda. And you see them as, as not people at all. You don't care about their soul. You don't care about them as a person. You just see them as something else. It's so easy for the self-righteous to care nothing about the soul of an individual. Jesus cares about the soul of an individual. Why else does he leave the, uh, leave the 99 and go looking after the one? And so do we name the sins of another and show no mercy? This whole chapter is going to try to convince us that we should be showing mercy, but also that we're guilty. And sometimes we're diverting attention from our own guilt by pointing out the accusing finger at others. As though their sin is worse. <laughs> well, um... Where do standards come from? They certainly come from the Word of God. But Paul's playing it a different way. He's sort of playing it the way that C.S. Lewis did it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, I can prove to you God, and I can prove that you're a sinner without ever using the Bible at all. And so Paul does the same thing. He says, I can, you know, I can, I can prove that you're a sinner. I can prove you're a sinner just by, by using the examples around us. Where do the standards come from? And in this case, Paul is saying you're free to make the standard. Make the standard. There it is. And so now that standard is the same for everybody. And there's no special privileges for the religious. There's no special privilege for the moral. Only greater responsibility. Why do I want to create that standard anyway? It's just making me more responsible. Um, like, how do we do that? So, so now we need to wiggle it out. Well, why did you act that way? Well, how would you like somebody to do that to you? So um, how would I like somebody to do that to me? So if I don't like it, then all of a sudden the standard doesn't apply anymore, right? Because now it's happened to me. If it's happening to you and you sin, then we put you in the category. If it happens to me, there's some rationalization. How would you like somebody to do that to you? And, and we create standards. We create standards. All of, us, all of us create standards. You think you don't create standards? You've created standards. Everybody has said this, the variation on a theme. Come on, you promised. You ever say that one? Come on, you said you'd do it. Come on. What are you doing? You're holding somebody to a standard. And if they don't own up to that standard, then they're going to say, man, you know, you told me you would do it. Well, you know what you did? You just created a standard. So now every time you tell everybody anywhere at any time that you're going to do something, you know what? You're obligated to do it. And if you don't do it, you're a sinner. But I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I know. You just don't always do what you say you're going to do. And you created a standard for other people, and now you're not living by that standard. And so Paul is showing us that we're all condemned, no matter how good, no matter how nice. Um, these, these laws that are inside of us. How about this one? Um, hey, give me some of that. I gave you some of mine. Well, so what? Like, I thought that you were just, I thought you were generous. Like, that's the way the game is played, that, you know, you give it to me, and so now it's like Ozies. 
Well, you've created a standard. And people don't say these things necessarily because they don't like your behavior, but they're appealing to a standard, a standard that we've all created. And Paul is showing us in this verse 1 that we've all created a standard. And because we've created a standard, if we don't live up to that standard, we're guilty. We're guilty. And then most people will say, well, I don't care about your standard, but then they'll try to prove that they're the exception. Here's the question about it. And I think C.S. Lewis, he tried to figure this out. Um, some people think that these things are learned. Some people seem to think they're created by the environment. Um, but some people say that they're inborn. Are these things inborn? Are these standards of good and right and wrong, are they, are they inborn? Are they in us? When God created us, did he create in us this law? Probably, because there's no, there's no culture anywhere that admires those who flee during trouble. We just had a few instances in our own society where some people fled in time of trouble. And, no, and nobody honors those people as heroes. And nobody admires somebody who feels proud when they've double-crossed somebody who's been kind to them. Nobody gives them the hero award. Nobody at that time of year when schools or organizations say, you know, submit the heroes in your community. Submit the heroes in your neighborhood. Nobody's like, hey, this guy double-crossed this guy and he got away with it and he feels great. You know, I think he ought to get the hero award. Absolutely not. You've created a standard. You're condemning yourself. And, and people in different cultures, so, you know, you go, well, you know, things change in societies and cultures and standards. And, and in differing cultures, um, some people argue whether you should have one wife or two wives, four wives. But nobody thinks that you should have as many wives as you want. Anywhere. There's standards. There's standards that, that seem to be inborn. Where else do you get those ideas? What culture thinks that you should be selfish? And so if there's a right and a wrong, then, then we all need to admit that within the last 48 hours, all of us did something that didn't meet those standards. So we're not even meeting the highest standard here. We're just meeting the standard that we've created. Watch how Paul says it. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge, whatever point. So here's the, here's the goodness scale from 1 to 100 or 1 to 10. Where do you set your standard? Well, I set it at a good, strong 6. Well then you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do these same things. And the standard is the same for everyone. The standard is a six. And there's no special privileges for the religious or the moral, only greater responsibility. Now, verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, so when you, a mere human, so it's really saying that God has the right to judge, but humans really don't have the right to judge. 
We have the right to discern, but that's another, that's another sermon, another study sometime. So you, when you're a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you're going to escape God's judgment? So we just watched all these notorious sinners come before the bench and they're condemned. And then the judge takes their place. And now today on the docket, we're having the nice people, the good people come up. You think they're going to escape? Because they enjoyed watching those other people get condemned. Do you think that they're going to escape? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Well, what's repentance? Repentance is when I change my mind. I changed my mind. It doesn't mean change my actions. It means change my mind. Well, your actions need to change. Well, repentance is the changing of my mind. Because when my mind changes, my actions will catch up. My actions will catch up. And we all know this. Because many of us have changed our outside behaviors. But inside, we are just as crusty and nasty (laughs) as we've ever been, maybe even worse. It's just that when it comes out, it doesn't work for us. It's not good for us. We don't get the result that we want when it comes out. But inside, we are dead man's bones. So it's the repenting is the changing of, of my mind. And what's going to get me to change my mind about being a sinner, whether it's a notorious sinner or whether it's a nice person, a good person sinner or a religious sinner? It's going to be the goodness of God, the kindness of God, that God keeps being merciful to me and keeps being good to me. When is he good to me? Well, let's watch. Because of the stubbornness, Verse 5, this is what God's saying to nice people. Because of the stubbornness in your unrepentant heart, you're stirring up wrath against yourself on the day of of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, he'll give eternal life. But he says in verse 4 again, do you show contempt for the kindness of God? Well, one of the examples of the kindness of God, and we'll get to this when we move on a little bit further and move into the religious one, but it fits here too, because he's talking about people who have received the kindness of God, receive the kindness of God even when we're sinners, notorious sinners, nice people sinners, religious sinners. Well, God had been good to Israel, to the Apostle Paul and to his people, and to some of the people that Paul is writing to who are Israelites. What had he given them? He gave them material and spiritual riches. He gave them a wonderful land. He gave them the righteous law. He gave them the temple and the priesthood. He gave them providential care. He gave them the word of God. And now he gives us Jesus. And God's goodness, knowing that he's good to us, later on in Romans we'll read where it says, even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so doing those same things, well, not the same things, not like same, same, 
I'm not doing what Caesar Nero did and kicking my wife's head in and then feeling bad that I kicked my wife's head in and she died. And so I need to get some guy that looks like her. Not, maybe not same, same, but just as horrible. What do you mean just as horrible? Just as horrible. Because in God's sight, there's no difference. Sin is sin. And so it's not same, same, but it's just as horrible. What's the difference? Well, because some churches say that you can be miserable, judgmental, greedy, stingy, full of gossip, but light up a cigarette on the campus and, wow, you know, wow. So what is that? What is that all about? What is that about? It's at whatever point, wherever you begin, you set the standard. And so we're being condemned by our own standard. Nice people are. Good people are. Your standard comes around to get you. <laughs> your standard's going to come around and bite you. And if you don't think that this is true, then you haven't lived with people because when you live with people, you set standards, even in your own house. You set standards. You set things. This is the way it is. And then you don't do them. And when you don't do them, do you hear about them? You hear about them. You hear about them. Your own standards come around and bite you. Um, but what if our judgment is faulty? When we start to judge anyway, what about if our judgment is faulty? You can't judge somebody's motives. You have... You have no idea where somebody's come from. And you don't have all the facts and all of the evidence. And then we can be unduly influenced. So the judgment of God, verse 8, but those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Wait, wait a minute. Slow it down. Slow it down. Because he's talking about rejecting the truth and following. That's what he said about the notorious sinners, that they're rejecting the truth, that they're following evil, that they're self-seeking, and that there'll be wrath and anger for them. But this is about good people, Paul. This is about nice people. You think nice people aren't self-seeking? There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Wow. Wow. You know, the judgment of God in, a, in an earthly courtroom, you can buy expert testimony. Anybody ever watch trials? You ever watch trials on YouTube or trials on TV? You watch these trials and... And they bring in experts. Well, they're getting wise now. And when they, when they start to talk to somebody who's coming in to testify, a lot of times they ask them, was your testimony bought? And who bought it before? And how much did they buy it for? But you can buy the expert testimony of a psychiatrist who will say that you have diminished capacities, that you grew up in deprived circumstances that created an uncontrollable impulse in you to steal horses. But you can't do it with God because you can get people to say anything. And we're constantly justifying ourselves. We're going to look at the big justifying yourself verse in just a moment here. But God sees everything and he knows everything. And so God's judgment is not like the judgment of people. God's judgment is not like the rationalization of our own mind. 
The standard is the standard. And in this case, Paul lets you set the standard. And so once that standard is set, it's inescapable. It's inescapable. Here's a couple of ways to um, escape human laws. Human laws, because there's laws and standards all over the place. Um, the first one is you can get away with it because your offense is not discovered. Should we ask for a show of hands? How many of you have committed offenses towards people in your family that have not been discovered? And show of hands, nobody's going to put their hand up. <laughs> sure, we've committed sins against those around us. We've committed sins against our family that have gone undiscovered. But boy, for some of those things, it's always like in the back of your head. I, you know, I hope they don't discover it. Well, how else can you um, escape human laws? You can flee the jurisdiction. You can flee to another state, flee to another country, fly yourself to the moon. You can get off on a technicality. And then after conviction, after they convict you, you can run away. But none of those are true with divine judgment. Divine judgment is perfect. You can't escape it. You will be discovered and you will be declared guilty. Notorious sinners, nice people, religious people. What does it say in Hebrews? That just as a person is destined to die once, after that he will face judgment. And then there's the thing about accumulated guilt. Accumulated guilt. And some of us have known this because we've become addicts. We've done things that have now made our lives unmanageable and have made our lives out of control. Because you get away with something, and then when you get away with it, you continue to go deeper and deeper into actions that are worse than the original ones. And it accumulates the guilt. Accumulates the guilt. Yeah, I love reading stories like, Somebody, when they're 91 years old, brings a library book back to the library <laughs> that they had for 47 years. You know, imagine that, like, feeling 47 years of guilt because you have the, never returned the library book, never, never intended to return it from the beginning. And just because judgment is delayed, that's what it's saying here. There's a time that God's judgment will come. So God's judgment is being delayed. It's being delayed. And just because judgment is delayed doesn't mean it's not coming. It's coming. The judgment is coming. And if you accumulate guilt, if you're a good person, nice person, and you're accumulating guilt, what's your score over the course of a lifetime? A little bit of guilt here, a little bit of wrong there. You know, according to your works. In Revelation, it says here in verse 6, according to your works. In Revelation, Jesus said, I know your works. I know your work. I, I know, I know your works. In verse 11, it says, God does not show favoritism. Doesn't show favoritism. He's not partial. When, when God judges, it will be according to the light and the understanding that people have. Let's keep reading. Let's get to the end of this one. Want to get out of this one? <laughs> let's, get, let's get on to somebody else. <laughs> it's, it's more fun looking at chapter one. Look at those guys. 
verse 13. For it's not those who hear the Lord, the law, that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey it will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, meaning God's law given in the Old Testament, when the Gentiles who do not have the Lord do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they don't have the law. They don't have the written law of the Old Testament. But, you know, we ask the question, are these things, were we born with these or do we pick them up from the environment or are we taught these things or do we get them from peer pressure? Well, right here, uh, Paul, and therefore God, seems to be saying by nature, by creation, we know these things to be true in our hearts. There are things in our hearts that we just know to be true, and nobody's ever taught them to us. We just know that it's wrong. And so um, Paul here, you know, talking about, uh, let's keep reading, and then we'll tear it apart a little bit more. Verse 15, they show when they do this, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness. And their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. And this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Christ Jesus as my gospel declares. You want to get rid of your sins. You the scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because when they pull out the thumb drive that has all of your accumulated sins and puts it on that big screen in heaven on judgment day, I want mine to have nothing on there. To have nothing on there. It says that he takes our sins and he casts them away as far as the east is from the west. And how do I do that? By accepting Jesus as my Savior and confessing my sins. And he gets rid of them. And when he puts my thumb drive in there, it will show absolutely nothing. Because he's forgiven me. And so on that judgment day, the secrets of people's hearts, all forgiven. All forgiven. And so in Paul's day... Uh, many spoke of the unwritten law. You know, the Greeks would be fond of that. The unwritten law, there were just things out there that are unwritten, that nobody has written down, but we know them to be true. Referred to as what? The law of nature. Oh, not gravity, but the inner law in, in, inside of us. C.S. Lewis said, first, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and they can't get rid of it. Humans know we should behave a certain way. And we can't get rid of it no matter what we try to do. We just can't get rid of it. And we know that when we break it, we're breaking some law of nature. Look what it says in verse 15. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness in their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. So there's three things there, your heart of hearts, your conscience, which is washing all of those thoughts. But what do I do with those thoughts? Sometimes those thoughts accuse me. I do something and I know that it's wrong. I just know it's wrong. 
so if I'm a good person, if I'm a nice person, if I'm a moral person, you know, I do things and I know that they're wrong. And sometimes it accuses me and so I decide to not do it or I take some action against it. But sometimes I do it and I defend myself. And so my thoughts start to work against my conscience. My thoughts are working against my conscience. And now I'm becoming a pretty conflicted, difficult to understand human being because my thoughts are fighting with my conscience. Well, where's the line? Where's the razor line between conscience and thoughts? I don't know that anybody can show you where the razor line is between conscience and thoughts. But it's there somewhere. You know, the Bible talks about the difference between thoughts and intentions. Well, where's that line? So things going on inside of me, I know the difference. I know right and wrong. And some of us have very sensitive consciences. There are things we just can't do that other people can't understand why you can't do them. You know, you have this refined conscience. Conscience is the work of God in every person. It's an inward monitor. And Timothy says that you can take it and you can sear it as though with a hot iron. Just take an iron and just put it on your conscience and just fry it. Get rid of it. Get that thing out of me. I don't want that in me. Why? Because when I do these things, it makes me feel bad, and I don't like feeling bad when I'm doing these things. You can weaken your conscience. How can you weaken your conscience? By doing the same thing over and over again, hardening your heart. You can condition it. You can talk to it. You can rationalize with it. But these secrets are the secrets of our heart, and God knows the secrets of our hearts. He divides between the thoughts and the intentions. It says that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, beholding the good and the evil. God sees what's going on. It's reality. It's reality. Let's just read two verses a little further. But this will bring us to the religious person. And now you, if you call yourself a Jew, which Paul was, So now he's talking about his religious group of people. He said, now if you call yourself a Jew or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic, if you call yourself a Methodist, Catholic, Jew, and you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior and instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, and it just goes on, you, too, are condemned. So, um, there we go. Sunday morning, um, all the nice people are condemned. <laughs> he condemns thee, he condemns thee, he condemns thee. <laughs> we are all sinners. We're all lumped into the same box. Because, you know, when we justify ourselves, you can always do it because there's always somebody beneath you. But there's also always somebody above you. There's always somebody that has done this so much better than you, has gone so much further, so much smarter, so much faster, so much more righteous, so much more well-behaved, so, so much more generous. But there's always people underneath you. We're all in this together. We're all in it together. So um, let's stand and sing and thank Jesus that he has taken our place in judgment, the notorious sinners, the good people, the religious people.
And we're blind to our own sin because even good people have a conscience that they're searing. You know, it used to be there was a program that the government ran called No Child Left Behind. And, you know, God's program is, you know, no sinner left behind. He'll, he'll justify every single one of us, no matter where we're at, no matter what we are. And so, God, here we stand before you. And we declare that your word is true, that you're righteous, that you're the only one. You're the only one who is pure. You're the only one who is perfect. All of the rest of us have sinned. We've sinned obviously and socially and openly, defiantly. And Lord, we've sinned uh, secretly. We've sinned hiding behind a cloak of righteousness and self-righteousness, respectability. But Lord, we know our hearts. We know our minds. We know what we're made of. And Lord, although we like to hide that and we like to put it off, Lord, it's in times like these where your Holy Spirit comes and just shows us that's who we are. Can't escape it. Your word is true. And so, Lord, next week we'll look at the religious people who think that uh, because of uh, being so enlightened and because of having a Bible and carrying it around that somehow we're better than everyone else. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone. Everyone has sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous. No, not one. So I don't know if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you don't, make Him Lord and make Him Savior. Let the judge take your place. Let Him come out from behind the bench and and come down and stand to you who's on trial and put his arms around you and tell you that he loves you, that he knows you, he's been looking for you, and he's died for you. Will you accept? Will you accept the judge taking your penalty? Will you accept the judge taking your guilt? We used to like to say around here, all you really need to do is to consent to be loved. Can you consent to being loved by God? Can you consent to letting Jesus take your sin on the cross to give you eternal life, to wash you from your sin, to give you new life all over again? How long will you fight? How long will you resist? Come home to His love. Come home this morning. Come home now. This is your time. This is your opportunity. Don't put it off. You don't know when the Holy Spirit will be speaking to your heart and your mind again. Jesus, I come to you. Let's all pray this out loud. Jesus, I come to you. I'm a sinner. I need your love. I need your grace. I need the cross. I need you, the judge, to take my place. And I thank you that I'm born again. I thank you that I have eternal life. 
And I thank you for your Holy Spirit, which dwells in me and will keep me and guide me. In Jesus' name. And then for the rest of us, Lord, would you pour out your mercy by your Holy Spirit as we're gathered here. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us. Make us merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Lord, we want to be merciful towards those people. Lord, we want to be merciful to the sinner. Lord, we want to be merciful to the rebellious. Lord, we want to be merciful to those who are on the other side, not our side. We want to be merciful. Understanding their people. People that you love. People that you died for. Lord, make us a people of love. Make us a people of mercy. Keep us from self-righteousness. Keep us from religion. Lord, make us people of grace. Having received grace, might we give grace. May the Lord fill, it, fill your heart with his love and his goodness and his kindness. May he send you on your way as you go into your home. Confess your sins now, those accumulated offenses that you've had against your own home, against your own family. Those things nobody knows about except for you. Leave them here. Leave them in the field. Jesus, forgive us. Give us a chance again. Give us hope again. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you. Even when we were yet sinners, he died for us. And now having come to him, he works with us. He's merciful to us. Be merciful to one another.
Amen. Amen. Have a great day. Peace. Get connected. Join a group. Don't forget to pick up your kids. Have a great week. Peace.